few weeks ago, I was watching a reality TV show, which is unusual for me, but I was, and it was kind of played up for comedy, but there was a situation in which they had a Christian woman and a Jewish woman having a conversation, and uh, it actually got pretty heated. The Christian woman insisted that Judaism was false because Jesus was the Messiah, that Judaism denied that Jesus was the true Messiah, and so it was false. And the Jewish woman, who's quite a bit older, and uh, I later read a few articles, she had lived through a lot of anti-Semitism and Jewish hate throughout her life, so she immediately reacted to this by calling this woman an anti-Semite and saying that she was uh, spreading hate. Of course, I, I don't want to make light of anti-Semitism or or the prejudice that some of the Jewish people have experienced, even in our own country. Uh, but it seems to me that just simply saying Judaism is false when it denies one of the tenets, the, the main tenets of Christianity, I, I don't see that as anti-Semitism. But the conversation continued, and the Jewish woman got very heated, and she finally was starting to storm out of the house, and she said, she said these words, Maybe one day you will understand that the world does not revolve around Jesus Christ. That quote caught my attention. Maybe one day you will understand that the world does not revolve around Jesus Christ. I couldn't have picked a better quote to get to the heart of the matter. Because for Christians, the world does revolve around Jesus. And not only that, we think the whole world should believe that Christ is the center of everyone's lives. It's not just that we're content that this is our truth. We think it is the truth for all people. And in the days of Isaiah, when he wrote down these words that we read this morning, God's people looked to the future for their hope. They longed for the day when God's promises would be fulfilled. They waited for those latter days when the Messiah, the Christ, would come and establish God's kingdoms. And as Christians today, we take this time of year leading up to Christmas, we call it Advent, and we take this time to remember that longing and that waiting and, and that long-suffering and, and patience and the groaning that God's people had in the past as they waited for the Messiah to come to make all things right. Now, Advent, just the word, refers to the arrival of a notable figure or event. For Christians, that notable figure is Jesus Christ, and that notable event is his birth in Bethlehem. And as, as Christians today, we place ourselves once a year in the Spirit of God's people long ago when they waited for the advent of Christ. And we sympathize with them. We actually empathize with them knowing that we too wait for Christ's advent. But it will not be his first. It will be Christ's second advent when he comes physically again to establish his kingdom fully and finally. And until then, we hope. We hope for a world revolving around Jesus Christ. A world centered on Christ. We hope for a world that puts Christ first and everything else second. We hope for a world drawn to Christ in worship, learning from Christ with obedience, and even being judged by Christ 
leading to peace. We hope for a world far better than the sinful one we've made for ourselves. And we will only see that world completely when Christ comes again. But until then, we can live out the reality of Christ's first advent, his first coming. We can live as people transformed by the gospel of Jesus' sinless life, his death for our sin, and his resurrection from the dead. And by this, we can transform the world around us. Because we hope for a world centered on Christ, we walk in Christ's light now. And that begins by hoping for a world drawn to Christ. Isaiah, here in verse 2, says that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Perhaps these words immediately make you think of Jerusalem, the temple mount in Jerusalem. In the past, the temple functioned as the house of the Lord where he was said to dwell with his people. And, and this temple was built upon a mountain, and therefore it would be very natural to think that this text is just referring to that geographic location. But there's a few problems with just taking that to straightforwardly be what the text means. One of those is if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you might know that the Temple Mount is not the highest of the mountains. It's not the highest of the hills. In fact, all the hills around Jerusalem are, not all of them, but almost all of them are higher than the mount that the temple was upon. Now that's not saying that God couldn't miraculously raise it up, but it is to say that we already see a picture in which the hills surrounding Jerusalem are higher. But this text says the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Another problem is that the temple, actually the second temple, the the second one that was built, was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem today, you know what you'll see there on the temple mount? It's not just a destroyed temple. It's not just a barren landscape. You're going to see a mosque. You're going to see the Dome of the Rock, the Golden Dome, and, and it'll be standing there. The temple is no longer physically there. Another problem I have with just simply taking this text to be talking about the Temple Mount is this. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is the new temple. In John 1.14, it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, it says the word became flesh and tabernacled or templed among us. That's what the actual word means. It's connecting Jesus' becoming flesh among us directly with the temple in which God's presence dwells. Likewise, in John chapter 2, verse 21, it says that Jesus, when speaking about the temple, was speaking about the temple of his body. He said, this temple will be destroyed and will be raised in three days. And they all got angry. But then John says he was talking about the temple of his own body. Finally, even when Jesus returns to completely establish his kingdom physically in the new heavens and new earth, Revelation 21-22 teaches us that there is no temple in the new Jerusalem. Because the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb is the temple. It seems 
fairly clear to me, if we're going to take the mountain of the house of the Lord, we are to read this not just as a geographic location, not just a mountain where a building used to be. We are to take this as Christ himself. Christ, who is the mountain of the Lord. Christ, who shall be lifted up higher than any of the hills. After his resurrection from the dead and before his ascension to the right hand of the Father, Jesus says this to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28, verse 18. Christ truly has been established as the highest of the mountains and lifted up above the hills. It is this mountain of our Lord Jesus Christ that draws together people from all nations. Here in verse 2 near the end it says, All the nations shall flow to it, literally stream to it. Eugene Peterson translates this part of the verse, All nations will river toward it. Literally the image we have is a river actually flowing up a mountain. And that river is the nations, people of all nations coming to Christ. Now that phrase, all nations, is actually really important. Those two words, if you, I just did a quick search because I was curious how often they appear in the Bible. So I searched uh, the English Standard Version, which is the Bible we use on Sunday mornings most of the time. And if you just search for all nations, those words appearing together, you'll get 166 times they appear in the Bible, which is two more times than the word hope appears in our Bible. And if you take out the word all and just look up the word nation, you're going to get over 400 results. You cannot be a Bible-believing Christian if you do not see God's work in the nations, his care for the nations, his love for the nations. Matthew 28, verse 19. Perhaps you think of this like I do when I hear the phrase all nations. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is Jesus at his great commission saying, All authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. We have been given a commissioning. It's really easy to take this verse in Isaiah and say, Well, all the nations will eventually come to Christ, so we don't need to worry about going to them. But it's precisely by our going to them that they are to come to Christ. God chooses. I mean, of course, God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's completely capable of choosing to just draw people to himself. But he has chosen to work through people, sinful, broken people like us, people redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He chooses to work through his church to accomplish his means. So if we expect people of all nations to come to Christ, it is not simply by a magic trick that that happens. It is by us going and making disciples of all nations. All nations will be drawn to Christ, but that is accomplished by us going to them first. In the same way that we love Christ because he first loved us, the nations will be drawn to him because we first go and proclaim him to them. If you've ever gone down to Cades Cove, you'll probably, especially recently, I don't know how long these signs have been up, 
But we noticed that whenever you drive on the loop of Cades Cove, it has signs every so often that say, be our idol, don't idol. I think sometimes we are apt to idol in our mission of the church. We are apt to sit on our hands and say, the nations will take care of themselves. God is all-powerful. He will bring people to repentance. He can give them visions. We don't need to worry about it. But the message of Scripture is constantly, don't idol. Don't wait. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave his disciples the commission to go and to spread his gospel. And they just stood there waiting and looking. And eventually an angel of the Lord appeared to them and said, what are you doing? Why are you just standing there looking up in the sky? Go, do what he said. Go and make disciples. And our church, if you don't know, is a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. I didn't grow up Southern Baptist. I I chose this life somehow. I think the Southern Baptist Convention and Southern Baptist churches are at their best when they put evangelism missions at the forefront, when we make sure that our number one priority is going and making disciples of all nations. And that's a calling for each and every one of us. And I see at least three ways that we are to go and to support the mission of the church in this world. The first, surprisingly, perhaps, is to go and make disciples. Literally go, be sent ones. And it doesn't escape my grasp that we still need to be encouraging and putting before people the idea that perhaps their calling, perhaps what God wants from them is to be missionaries in a foreign country, to be sent. It's perfect that Jeff and Leslie were here this morning because they're a perfect example of people who were in this church, heard the gospel in this church, at least Leslie, I'm, you know, Jeff, I'm throwing you in there, but have now been sent. That is a pattern that we should be seeing happening again and again. We should be encouraging young people. Parents, I know this. I hate this for you. But we should be encouraging young people to go into the field, to give all that they have in order to go overseas. It doesn't matter if you think you have too much stuff in a storage building. Guys, we will help you get rid of it. If you feel like you have too much debt, we will do what we can to help get rid of it. If you've got a dog you need someone to watch for 20 years while you go move to Africa, we will find someone to watch your dog. Don't let anything stand between you and doing what God would have you do. Don't let anything count you out. And just before you think I'm just preaching to the teenagers in the room, I know plenty of stories, and you can probably think of some yourself, of people in their golden years, I'll put it that way, in their 60s, 70s, 80s, who were not content with quietly retiring, going on their vacations, sitting on golf courses, but they knew that they were being called by the Lord, even in those years, to go and bless the nations. And mind you, that's biblical. We have Abraham and Sarah who in their golden years were called to bless the nations through a son that they thought would never be born to them. So I just simply want to put before you the reality that Jesus says go and make disciples. You know what that means? That means our question isn't whether we should go. The question we should ask ourselves is where God would have us go. It's not a question of whether, it's simply a question of where. Isaiah, if we just turn a few pages, we look at Isaiah chapter 6, 
In verse 8, he says he has a vision and he heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. That should be our spirit. When the Lord asks, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? We say, Here I am, send me. Because the nations are lost and dying. There are people all over this world who have never heard the name of Jesus. There are people losing their lives and have never heard the good truth of Jesus Christ. And I know that some of us aren't called to that. But I can't believe, I can't believe that none of us are. That is just simply untrue. We have a pattern throughout Scripture of God sending people to other places and other peoples with the gospel. And that's not a pattern we should ignore. And if we're unable to go, then we need to recognize that maybe our responsibility simply is to fund those people who are going. I've had to raise money for missions. I hate it. It's awful. You have to go to people and be like, we would love your prayer support, but also we would actually love maybe even more your money. But then we have to be like, no, prayer is more important because obviously it's more important and more spiritual. But your money is really important. But the reality is, if we are unable to go, then maybe our calling in this life, when it comes to sending the message of the gospel out of this country, is to fund those who are. And the good thing is, I'm not going overseas right now, so I can say this without reservation. If you don't know, uh, Southern Baptists across the country right now are raising their funds for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Lottie Moon was a missionary in China, and we've named this Christmas offering after her. And every year, Southern Baptists give quite a bit of money to this offering because 100% of that money goes towards missionaries who are on the field. So the first thing I'll say is, I'm not asking you to take your regular tithes and offerings to the church and to throw them somewhere else. We would love those too. But above and beyond that regular giving, I just encourage you to find a way to support missionaries, whether that's the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which I love, or whether that's Jeff and Leslie, which we also love, although I just met them on Thursday. So I got to watch. At, we, got, we went over to the Davises for Thanksgiving dinner, so we got to watch all the kids just going everywhere. But wherever that money goes... There are ways that we can sacrificially give to missions. I know of uh, some families who the children will say, you know, you usually give us three presents, we just want two this year. And if you'll give the money that you're going to give for the third present, we want that to go to Lottie Moon. I genuinely know families who, whose kids do that. You might just say, throughout the month of December, I usually get a Starbucks coffee in the morning. I'm going to not get that. All the money that goes towards that, I'm going to put towards Lottie Moon. I eat out several times a week. You know what? I'm going to make sandwiches for lunch instead, and I'm going to put that extra money towards Lottie Moon. And it may be just a few pennies, but it doesn't matter because God is calling us to obedience. God is calling us to make disciples of all nations, and that's a project we all need to be a part of, whether we physically move overseas or not. And the final way that we can support the Great Commission is by making disciples where we are now. Some have pointed out that in the Great Commission, it's not just a, a command, go and make disciples, but the way it's actually written in the original language, maybe we should see it as, as you are going, make disciples. 
I'm not going to get into that debate. I'm going to say, let's just go with both and. Go and as you are going. Whatever town, whatever neighborhood God has put you in, whether, whatever job he has put you in, whatever people he has surrounded you with, that is your mission field. Because there is not a Christian who is not sent. Just because you aren't sent to a foreign country doesn't mean you get out of the Great Commission. We are all called to that task of making disciples, of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me just say this. If you have ascended the mountain of the Lord, if you have climbed to the top of Mount Jesus, if you would say you have repented of your sin and trusted in him for salvation, then I'm just going to expect that as you received a new repentant heart, you have received a heart overflowing for sinners in every nation. If you read your Bibles, you cannot escape this task. You just can't. You just can't. If you read the Old Testament, you're going to see the nations. If you read the New Testament, you're going to see them. And you're going to see a calling to go to all of them. And that includes the people who are in your own backyard. It strikes me that saved souls save souls. People who are bought with the blood of Jesus do not hide that. People who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed it Go and tell it to other people. And that's not easy. It puts a lot of pressure on us. It's a lot harder than saying, hey, we want you, church staff, to go create a program that saves people. We want you to put some events on the calendar so that we can see people reached. It's, it's a lot harder than saying, let's direct some funds to bringing in a missionary or an evangelist who will come and do all our evangelism for us. I'm from Oklahoma. Oklahoma Baptists are notorious for a camp called Falls Creek. It's in many ways a great camp. But evangelism for youth in Oklahoma looks like this. Come to church, come to church. It's April, come to church, come to church. June, July comes around. Let's take all these lost kids to Falls Creek and hope they're saved there. And then we'll try to work with it when we get back. Instead of actually preaching the gospel, we try to get them into the club long enough that they go to this camp where they might be saved. How often do we just shell out money or shell out our energy to get someone else to come do our evangelism for us? But it's also not that hard. It's not easy. It's harder than pawning it off on somebody else. But it's not that hard to go to your family, your friend, your neighbor, and simply do this. Point them to the mountain that is higher than any other hill. To point them to Jesus, whose way is better, whose truth is better, whose life is better. It is not hard to simply redirect their attention to Jesus. That is not that hard. It is not that hard to say the hill you have built your house on is awful. This sin that you have loved is awful. This religion that you have tied yourself to is awful. The things that you were trusting in are not true. And to say there is a better way, his name is Jesus Christ, that is not hard. I'm from Poto, Oklahoma, a town most of you, probably all of you, have never heard of until I showed up. I'm from Poto, Oklahoma, and if you've met someone from there, if you've ever been there, you probably know one fact about Poto, Oklahoma, because it is the one fact that exists about Poto, Oklahoma, and for some reason, we're oddly proud of it. It's that in Poto, Oklahoma, there is the world's highest hill, and I can't even make that up. We got a sign and everything. It's every, we got signs everywhere about it. 
this hill, Kavanaugh, is allegedly one foot shorter than what would qualify it to be a mountain. So instead of saying, so thankfully it wasn't one foot taller, we'd have to call it the world's smallest mountain. But instead, it's the world's highest hill, which is a much better title. And when I drive up there, they, they've actually really made the top of it very nice now. There's a pavilion, there's a nice little lookout point they built that you can go stand on. When you look at it, you can see across the town. I can point out where my neighborhood is that my parents live in. I can look and see most of the town and the surrounding area. And it's amazing to be up there and to be that high. But then, I was asked to come here, and we've got the Smokies in our backyard. And if I go up on those mountains, I can see a lot farther when it's clear than I could ever see on Kavanaugh. I can see a lot better, I can be a lot higher, I can have a lot more fun on the Smokies than I can on Kavanaugh. But if I had never heard of the Smokies, I'd be content to stay on that hill. I'd be content to stay on Kavanaugh and just keep looking out and thinking it's amazing. But someone came and told me about the Smokies. When we live in sin, when we live for another Savior, when we think we are our own Savior, whatever hill we find ourselves on, we can be so content to be there. And we will never know that there is one that is better unless someone comes and says, I know a better hill. I know a higher hill. It has been exalted by the Lord. It is lifted up. It has all authority in heaven on earth. This hill is Jesus, and at his name every nation shall bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. We have got to go to people and to tell them this truth. And I want to ask you just to think for a moment, who are the people in your life right now you can be praying for to tell about Jesus? And would you make a commitment to pray for an opportunity to share the gospel with them, and even to set an appointment. But it's not just a world drawn to Christ. That's not simply enough. We hope for a world that is learning from Christ. After Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations and to baptize them, he tells them to teach everything that he commanded. Teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. The reality is, we can often get so caught up in the desire to see a conversion that we forget about the need to make a disciple. We can get so wrapped up in getting someone across some line of our own making so that we know whether they're in or out, whether they're on their way to heaven or hell, that we forget the need that they have to grow in Christ thereafter. It says in Isaiah here, that many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. They're not just drawn to Christ because he's a spectacle. They're not just drawn to Christ because he's an attraction. They're not just drawn to Christ because they were told that's where they ought to show up. They're drawn to Christ expecting that once they get there, something's going to happen. They're going there expecting that they're going to learn something, that they're going to find a better way. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, and his way is perfect and his path is right. So Jesus himself is the way. And as his followers, we ought to learn better 
what it looks like to follow his paths. We aren't just simply called to know Jesus and to make him known. We are called to become like Jesus, to follow and imitate him. There is a German pastor and an anti-Nazi dissident named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in his day, in 1937, he wrote a work on discipleship. It was actually a reflection on the Sermon on the Mount. And this was right at the rise of the the Nazi party in Germany. It was kind of inevitable that the war was going to come at that point. He says this. He opens the book with these two sentences. Cheap grace was the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. And just for a moment, I want to distinguish cheap from costly grace. Because we are so quick to affirm the gospel and its grace, but not always to understand it rightly. Bonhoeffer says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Cheap grace. But this is what he says of costly grace. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, at which the, disciples, the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. He says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace. Because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Cheap grace is a decision without a commitment. Cheap grace is, cross, is, is, is truly heaven without God. Cheap grace is a watered-down gospel so that anyone can enter in. But we must not forget Luke 9.23 when Jesus says, If anyone comes after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It is true that we are to take on the yoke 
of Christ. It's costly, but that yoke is easy and that burden is light. Grace. Acts 1.8 says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Truly, the law shall go forth out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, which was fitting. And so it is in that preaching of the word that we now hope for a world judged by Christ. Jesus taught that all judgment has been given to him by God the Father. This is John 5, 22. And we usually don't picture Jesus as a judge. He is good, but we don't often think about judgment as a good thing. Judges are heartless and cruel. Judgmental people are unfair and rude. When regular people judge others, they are hypocrites. But the judgment of Christ is good. It's good because he is perfect, and it is good because it results in peace. Unlike Christ, we are imperfect and judge imperfectly. We judge from sinful hearts. But Jesus was perfect and judges perfectly. He judges from a sinless heart. I don't know about you, but I'd rather Jesus be my judge than one of y'all guys or myself. Not only that, but Jesus' judgment produces peace. We see this, it says in verse 4, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. When Jesus judges, peace reigns. When Jesus judges, he brings peace. Now, I think this is the point where some of you may not be convinced that this text is about Jesus' first coming, but you're only convinced that this is about Jesus' second coming. Because you say, we don't see Jesus judging the nations, we don't see him deciding disputes. In fact, we don't see, people take, we don't see nations taking their WMDs and turning them into combines, or taking their tanks and turning them into tractors. We don't see those things. Not only do we not see people we see people continually learning war. We, we actually feel like we're often on the brink of war in our world. We live in the tension between Christ's first coming and his second. It says that all of this shall come to pass in the latter days. That verse in the Old Testament is all about the future. It's all about the end of history. But in the New Testament, it defines the latter days as the time of the Christ. From, from his first coming to his second that whole period of time, sometimes referring more to the first or the second or something in between. So it may be that these things are already true because of Christ's coming and the work he has done, but not yet fulfilled completely as we will see them in the future. It's kind of like when you buy a house and take out a mortgage. Who owns the house? You're all going to get on Instagram and take a picture. No, you're not, but some of you will. And you're going to say, I just bought a house. I own a house. I'm a homeowner. But you've got to pay, make payments every month to somebody else. And if you stop, they're going to take it from you. Because the house is already yours, but it's not yet yours. In the same way, the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. It has come, and every victory that is necessary has been accomplished by Christ when he came and lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death, which he did not deserve, and was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now he reigns there, waiting for the day that he bodily returns and establishes his kingdom fully and finally. We live in that tension. Our hope is not just future, but it is also past, and it is for the present. So Isaiah ends this passage with verse 5. 
O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. We don't just hope for this future because Christ will return. We hope that we can bring this future into reality to the best of our abilities in our church. The church should not be a place of war, but a place of peace. It should be a place where we learn from Christ and are drawn to Christ and worship Christ. But also as we spread the gospel truth in our world. Because we hope for a world centered on Christ, we walk in his light now. I'm I'm thinking of the words of the late great, I know y'all are, some of y'all may know where I'm going, but Michael Jackson, who said, if you want to make the world a better place, he actually sang it, but I'm not going to, take a look at yourself and make that change. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to go overboard with this uh, illustration, but we have got to start with the man or the woman in the mirror. If we want to see a world centered on Jesus, then we ought to be a people who walk in the light of Christ's advent. We must be a people who walk in the reality of the hope that we want to see. We must be people who are ourselves drawn to Christ, who want to worship him, who want to draw other peoples in and go to them and tell them the truth. We must be a people who are learning from Christ by reading his word, by praying for clarity, for going to church and hearing the preaching of his word. We must be a people who live in light of God's judgment, knowing that his eyes are everywhere, his ears are everywhere. There is not a thing we do in public or in private that the Lord does not see, but we know that his judgment that is coming upon us will bring us peace. Because if we have trusted in the mountain of the Lord, then on that day we will stand as those who are on that mountain Because of the work of Christ, not the work of ourselves. And it is not fun to walk in the light of the Lord. Because the Lord's light may just cast shadows we do not want to see. It may just expose sin we do not want to admit or confess. It may just keep us from pointing our fingers at others and pointing them back at ourselves. Realizing that maybe the reason we don't see the world we want to see is because we aren't the people we need to be. It may just be that walking in the light is harder But it is what we're called to do. In response to this vision for hope, we are called to walk in the Lord's light. And I'll end by saying this. There is also so much peace when we walk in the light of the Lord. It is not just dreary. It is not just dark. It is not just exposing our sin. But it gives us occasion to put to death our sin. It gives us occasion to stand and bask in the glow of our Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us occasion to feel the warmth of his light upon us. It gives us occasion to trust him for all things and in all ways. Let's pray.